This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hey. Uh, we're going to talk about some awards in the New York Film Critics Circle, voted on by the August Richard Lawson, and what it means for the Best Supporting Actress race, which might be the most interesting one at this point. Um, and we're going to talk about Empire of Light, which is out in theaters this week after a festival run. Um, but first, we're going to look toward the future because the Sundance lineup is out, um, full of many mysteries, as usual, because Sundance is more focused on emerging filmmakers than many of the other ones that we talk about. Um, but, you know, just looking over the list that we saw, there is so much stuff to get excited about already. Um David, you did the honors of writing about it for us. So um, what were you focused on there? Um, well, I love Nicole Holoff Center. And I love uh, her, I think it was her last feature, one of her last features in Upset. So seeing her reunite with Julia Louis-Dreyfus for a new movie is very exciting. It's called You Hurt My Feelings. It's about a novelist that Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays uh, who overhears her husband talking talking some shit. <laughs> and uh, that's a great premise for Holof Center, and I can't wait to see that. I'm guessing um, the I husband is played by Tobias Menzies, who's in the cast he, list. He is. And Michaela Watkins, who's been, I think, in a couple Nicole Holof Center films now, is uh, in the supporting role there. She's really great. So looking forward to that. Nicole Holof Center is... Mm-hmm. Oh, so I keep interrupting you, but Arian Moyed, who's on um, Succession as Stewie. Uh, this episode can just be like picking out the names that just appear <laughs> randomly, and you're like, who are these people playing? Because there are so many. <laughs> Interestingly, I believe the Hall of Center is an A24 movie. Ooh. Um, her last one was with Netflix with uh, Ben Mendelsohn. I don't know. That's think a lot right. Of people yes. saw that one. Land, Land of Steady Habits. Her, her only, I think, only movie that's with a male lead. But this one just, yeah, like you said, David, the premise is amazing. I'm curious to see what A24 can do with it theatrically. Um, yeah, so that's number one for me. And then I think in the most high profile of this group, you have Eileen, which is the Tessa Moshveg adaptation with Thomas and Mackenzie and Anne Hathaway. Tessa Moshveg has been fast rising novelist over the last few years. So this is uh, likely going to be a pretty high profile adaptation uh, to see how her work translates. And she worked on um, the screenplay and produced the film. And that movie is directed by William Oldroyd, who did Lady Macbeth, which is kind of what yes. shot Florence McPugh to fame. Florence McPugh, did I just say? I think I did. <laughs> you did. Uh, you, did it. you can't yeah. correct it now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's her name now. Sorry. Um, she's drinking Mick Negronis. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that um, that's really promising. That it's a pairing of an interesting novelist, an interesting cast, Thomas and Mackenzie, Anne Hathaway, and an interesting director. Yeah, I think that's 
definitely one of the uh, glossier titles on display. As ever perusing this list, you know, some some funny names jump out at you. Adam Lambert from American Idol is in a movie. Yeah, about, the cast of that movie, yeah. run us down that, because that Wild. one looks fascinating. So it's a movie called Fairyland, and it's based on a memoir about a father and daughter in 1970s, 80s, like counterculture San Francisco as AIDS kind of enters the scene. Um, as I mentioned, American Idol's own Adam Lambert. I'm assuming it's the same Adam Lambert. Maybe I'm wrong, but he was an actor before. He, he was in Wicked before he was on on the sh- on American Idol. Uh, Scoot McNary, Amelia Jones from CODA. Uh, Cody Fern, who people know from like the Ryan Murphy verse these days. Maria Bakalova from uh, the Borat sequel. And then Gina Davis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who was playing, I don't know, San Francisco itself, maybe. I, I, I don't know. But um, that feels like... Very intriguing. I don't. It's Sophia Coppola as a producer on it, so that kind of also piques my interest. But um, again, that's just one of those Sundancey casts. We were like, okay, sure, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> it's not always those kind of bizarrely star-studded movies that play well at Sundance. But um, I don't know. I'm curious about that one. I do want to point out that there's two Amelia Jones movies, mm-hmm. which feels like. You know, after Coda, it's interesting to see her back um, at the festival. And the other one is probably one I'm most interested in. It's Cat Person, which is based on that um, viral New Yorker short story. Was it a couple years ago? I can't. I can't remember. It was, and and Kristen Rupini and the author. Uh, she also had the story credit, I believe, or maybe the screenplay credit as well on Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. So this is her her next credit. Yeah, so I think that's going to be one to watch for sure. It's directed by Susanna Susanna Fogel, so I'm curious to see how that one does. Written by TV's Michelle Ashford, Masters of Sex, among many other shows, and that film. It feels like it's been talked about for a long time, and I didn't quite realize this is another one with a... I mean, I knew Nicholas Braun was in it, but the supporting cast is also very grab-baggy. You have Geraldine Viswanathan, Hope Davis, Fred Malamed, Isabella Rossellini. So I'm curious about it. I'm I'm not sure, given you know the scope of that story, how she's going to expand it, but I'm interested to see what she does. Uh, yeah, I'm um, talking about the star-studded movies versus maybe the discoveries and not knowing which one is going to play biggest at Sundance. It's really such a, a guessing game. So I'm looking in the dramatic competition category where I think you tend to get more of the breakouts. And there's some intriguing descriptions. This movie, All Dirt Roads, Tastes of Salt, that has Barry Jenkins as a producer. Uh, Moses Ingram is in the supporting cast, but and Sheila team of The Woman King, but it's a lot of... Uh, newcomers in there, um, or there's multiple movies um, from Native storytellers and Native filmmakers, which is interesting. And um, Fancy Dance is in the competition with Lily Gladstone, who, to me, is famous, um, of Kelly uh, Regard's Certain Women. So I'm trying to kind of put some guesses in there about what might be the, you know, the Coda or Beast of the Southern Wild surprise there. Yeah, I mean, Barry Jenkins and Adele Romanski produced After Sun, which I think we've all loved. And so I feel like I would kind of trust them if their names yes. are producers <laughs> on something. Um, so I also noticed that one. And then I'm 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 very curious to see Magazine Dreams. It's the Jonathan Majors bodybuilder film that I that I think is the first thing he produced. Um, but it also has like Dan Gilroy as a producer. Um, so I'm curious to see that one as well. I can't believe we've gotten this far without talking about the Iris Axe movie. That yes, I imagine... that was the other one I wanted to point out. <laughs> I feel like we must have flagged it in our like 2023 Oscar predictions episode because we've all been looking forward to this one for a long time. Um, but yeah, David, you want to go through that one? Yeah, so um, Iris Axe is one of my very favorite filmmakers, particularly when he does explore 
romance um, and queer romance. Love is Strange, Keep the Lights On are two pretty extraordinary movies, in my opinion. Uh, and so his last movie was Frankie, which I considered a bit of a miss. So I'm very excited to see him seemingly getting back into his groove with this, quote, intimate examination of attraction and emotional abuse between men and women. Um, it stars Ben Wishaw and also Franz Rogowski, who I really want to point out because he was amazing uh, in Great Freedom, um, very unheralded movie from earlier this year. Um, so they are the two leads. And then you also have, puttering around, Adele Exarchipolo, who was the lead of Blue is the Warmest Color, who I don't believe I've... Yeah, I don't think I've seen her in anything since Blue is the Warmest Color. I, I'm sure she's... I know she has credits, um, but this feels like a potentially high-profile return for her. Um, the one other thing I wanted to mention with this movie is Ben Wishaw is in two movies as well. The other one is a world cinema uh, competitor directed by Alice Englert. Does anyone know who that is? Oh, Jane Campion's yeah. daughter. Jane Campion's daughter. So Ben Wishaw getting back in that Campion family train. Uh, Richard, can we talk about theater camp, please? Oh, yeah, I want to hear. Yeah, my parents never let me go because it was too expensive. <laughs> oh, you mean the movie that's going to be in Sundance. Uh, about I'm very your excited. experience of not getting to go to theater camp. Uh, I'm very excited to be in Park City and be able to say, oh, I can't, I have theater camp. Uh, <laughs> at, you know, I got to go to theater camp, but down at the Eccles. Um, yeah, that's uh, a movie, I guess it's a, about sort of... Um, well, it's written as uh, the beloved founder of a rundown theater camp in upstate New York, so stage door manner-ish, I guess, falls into a coma. The eccentric staff then must band together with the founder's crypto bro son to keep the camp afloat. Molly Gordon, who wrote and co-directed it, uh, is in it with Ben Platt and Noah Galvin, recent fiancés. Uh, Jimmy Tatro, who was so amazing on American Vandal. Patty Harrison, who's amazing in everything. Io Devery, ditto. It's just like a, it's a fun cast, a fun premise, very Sundancey. Yeah. Um, and then I think kind of on the other kind of curious gay pop culture side of things is this Sebastian Silva movie. You oh, know, yeah. He, um, oh, where yeah. He, 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 it's about him, the filmmaker, going missing. And then Jordan Firstman, the, you know, social media comedian writer guy plays Jordan Firstman, the social media com <laughs> comedian writer guy, looking for him, trying to solve the mystery. So if you want to go a little more meta with your, like, cool L.A., New York gay guy stuff, <laughs> you can go that route, or you can follow me to theater camp. Or hang out with Iris X. There's lots of options. Yes, you can. I also want to bring up, um, there's a movie called A Thousand and One that I by a filmmaker named A.V. Rockwell, and I was reading that she um, won some kind of filmmaking thing at Tribeca. She went to some sort of inst intensive there. She made a short, and now she's expanded that into a feature-length film about a woman who kidnaps her own son out of foster care. Um, and it stars Tiana Taylor, who is sort of known as a singer, I guess, and was on My Super Sweet 16. And like, that kind of feels to me like, okay, could that be a big breakout-y kind of performance in the vein of, I don't know, so many other Sundance breakouts? Um, that I'm, I'm really curious about that, um, because it does have this pedigree of it's like been a long gestating thing, like a lot of these movies have, I'm sure. I wanted to flag a couple documentaries because I think every Sundance has at least a couple of breakout documentaries. Fire of Love, I remember seeing there virtually last year. Um, Lana Wilson, who made the Taylor Swift documentary Miss Americana, has one about Brooke Shields that's called Pretty Baby. So I think you kind of get the angle that it's going to approach her career from, mm -hmm. which is really fascinating. There's a Little Richard documentary that's going to be one of the opening night um, selections. And then I just want to like put my bet on one that I don't know anything about beyond the description, but I just feel like we should keep an eye on it. 
It's called Going Varsity in Mariachi and the first sentence of the title of first sentence of the summary. In the competitive world of high school mariachi, the musicians from the South Texas borderlands reign supreme. Uh, I think I'm going to love that movie. <laughs> <Get some laughs> <wonder> real <laughs> crowd, please, also, one of the producers on that is Lin-Manuel Miranda's father, <laughs> which makes it more interesting. That guy, is, he just has everywhere. He's busy. The busiest <laughs> man in Hollywood. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, I'm hoping schedule-wise that there's a chance that I could see Theater Camp and then immediately go watch a Judy Bloom documentary. Oh, my God. Which would and, be like, okay, i And do okay, the Mariachi movie the same yeah. day. You'll just be <laughs> yeah. right back in high school. Um, I, I, Judy Bloom, a big, a big fan of hers. And so I'm excited for Judy Bloom Forever, that documentary. Um, I did want to point out there's a documentary on Michael J. Fox and after called Still and after, um, you know, seeing him at the Governor's Award and just hearing him speak and how funny and charming he is, but also obviously so passionate about this cause. I think a full documentary. I was literally like, I want to see everything that he's doing. So and it's directed by David Guggenheim, who did An Inconvenient Truth. And uh, he named me Malala. So I think that's one to watch as well. It's it's worth watching the midnight section as well. Um, I think about that a lot in terms of, you know, where the Sundance breakouts can be going forward, because given how the indie theatrical space has changed, it does feel like horror is where audiences show up. And this is the place where Hereditary, Babadook and others premiered. Uh, and I know Neon is very high on Infinity Pool, which is their film from Brandon Cronenberg. Uh, it stars Alexander Skarsgård and in what I've heard is another wild, great performance, Mia Goth. So that is definitely one to keep your eye on as a potential breakout. I just saw that there's one about an ice skater and I was like, a horror movie about an ice skater is something I need to see. So I'm going for that. Uh, there's one. also one called Run, Rabbit, Run that is not about the John Updike book, but it's yeah, uh, Sarah I was, Snook. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love it. Reclaim that. Uh, Sarah, Sarah Snook is a fertility doctor. Um I feel like she could be a really good in a horror movie. Her face is so expressive, so I'm totally. excited to see that. Um, just to talk logistically about Sundance, though, Richard, you'll be going to Park City in person. For the first time in two years, there's not been an in-person Sundance uh, since the one that happened in 2020, and everyone uh, months later was like, what if I got COVID at Sundance? First time um, in but- three years. Oh, God, yeah, that's how time works. Um, and then, But there will be an online component this year, and in the announcement of the lineup, it tells, says which ones are online, and uh, David and Rebecca, you and I, uh, we will all be watching it from home and hopefully seeing a lot of good stuff because it seems like more is available virtually than I expected. It looks just like a a cursory look at the list. It looks like the competition films will all be available online. And then the premieres, which is like the Hall of Center, a couple other of the quote unquote bigger titles are not, which I can understand why, um, depending on distributors and whatnot. But yeah, it looks like a pretty healthy portion of the lineup will be online, which is, you know, I know part of not just COVID, you know, practicalities, but also like, Sundance trying to expand who has access to these films during the festival. I mean, I think we all know from having been there that the process of an audience falling in love with a movie really happens best when everyone's there in person. But then again, Coda, a huge crowd pleaser, premiered at an all virtual Sundance and then won, won Best Picture. So maybe you never know. Yeah. I mean, Sundance has had a really good Oscar run of late. And mm-hmm. even during a pandemic, like they they have uh, churned out a lot of stuff that uh, or or, you know, state, you know, premiered a lot of stuff rather than not churning it out, but um, that has done very well. So and things could still be added to this list. We don't know. Yeah, that's true. I think usually a couple more things come up to surprise us. So stay tuned. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. 
In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So this weekend, award season, it's a little bit quiet. The National Board of Review will announce their winners uh, this week after we're recording this. Um, but last Friday, the New York Film Critics Circle gathered uh, to pick a really interesting slate of winners. Uh, Richard, you were there. You're not going to reveal too much about the voting process. But I imagine you're feeling pretty proud of what you guys came up with. I think it's a good list. I think, um, you know, we, we got to cover a lot of films. It wasn't like one movie won, you know, six awards or whatever, um, which, you know, has happened in the past. And that's OK, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we had a good spread and there were some surprises, um, you know, Kiki Palmer for Nope in the supporting actress category. RRR. Yeah. Yeah. W- winning best director was, was really, um, surprising, um, and fun. Um, and it was, you know, as ever, I, I again, I can't really give much away, but it was really nice t- during the voting process. We, we, um, we don't know who's voting for what it's all kind of a anonymous ballot thing, but the names are read out like, okay, this, this ballot has these people on it, you know, and and there was a real array of people and 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 movies. And uh, it just, you know, I had been feeling kind of in doing my top 10 list, uh, which is up on VF.com now, I had been feeling a bit like, what was this year in movies? And then sitting there for the vote, I was like, oh, there was really genuinely a lot of good stuff. You maybe just had to look for it a little bit more in- intently than in years previous. I mean, I think if we had all placed bets ahead of time, we all would have bet on Tar being the best picture choice in the New York Film Critics Circle, uh, and, and it was. Um, Kate Blanchett won Best Actress as well. But you're right that there was there was an interesting spread in there. I mean, David and Rebecca were watching this as outsiders. Like, do you see anything as having gotten a special boost? I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Kiki Palmer in a minute. We got a lot to say about Kiki Palmer. What else do we want to say got a boost? I mean, we have to talk about RRR getting yeah. Best Director. I thought that was the biggest surprise to me. I mean, I know... There are huge fans of that movie, you know, in this industry and that it has done so well in the States. Um, But I just didn't see that one coming. And if you're thinking about, you know, who could potentially take that international directing slot, um, which we talk about every year. And Mm -hmm. of course, Drive My Car was not the movie on our radar in that place until the New York Film Critics Circle. Then Mm -hmm. maybe it is a movie to think about. It, It also feels like there's so much goodwill behind that campaign because India did not select it as their international submission, um, that there's a recognition that there it needs that extra support. Um, and this is exactly the kind of recognition that uh, helps in that effort. So I thought it was interesting and not insignificant to its campaign at all. Well, we've been talking so much about how the Oscars want movies that, uh, you know, actually the people actually saw and that people actually care about. And RRR is, you know, not the size of Top Gun Maverick, but... Uh, you know, it's made more money than Till, for example, uh, or the Banshees of Sharon at this point. So it's a it's a hit by its own standards. And I did. I was talking to a friend about what happens if um, if you have a, a year in the best director category where it's S.S. Rajamouli and James Cameron, like the two like masters of spectacle from across the globe. Um, I would like it. Maybe some people wouldn't. But I, I like <laughs> that idea. I don't want to overstate the critic circles influence at all. But I think there was something interesting last year about when Drive My Car won Best Picture at the Critics Circle. Um, and then it went on to so much, you know, yeah. Oscar glory, basically. Um, I don't know if those are entirely related, but I think that in the case of something like RRR or, um, you know, maybe some other things that, that won uh, last week, like it certainly helps, you know, put that movie in a certain kind of context that maybe it wasn't in before. 
Um, I mean, drive my car probably was, but um, in the case of RRR, yeah. I mean, there are controversies lurking around that movie, certainly. Um, I've read some pieces about some concerns that it's sort of an agent of Hindu nationalism and it's a politically fraught um, issue that, you know, if you haven't read about it, people should. It's it's interesting. I don't honestly know enough about um, Indian politics to really um, assess it in any sort of real way, but I don't know if that will come to, to bear on the film's campaign. But there certainly is going to be a campaign now, I think. Um, in terms of Kiki Palmer's win, the this critic circle, as, as you well know, Richard, uh, has definitely had a lot of fun in this category in the past. Like, I think of Tiffany Haddish. Yes. Uh, who did not go on to a nomination, or Maria Bakalova, who did. And to me, it just spoke to how insanely unformed this category is, which I know we're going to talk more about uh, on this show. But um, it was really exciting to see her win that and to see yet another name sort of pop into that conversation. But I will say, I had no idea that she was being positioned as supporting until I saw that win. And yeah, then I same. checked Universal's FYC page and that, you know, it wasn't a, you, you guys didn't go on a leap, out on a limb. That really is where she's competing, um, which I have some questions about, although it's probably my own hypocrisy that I'm completely fine with her running and supporting. And with Carrie Mulligan, I'm outraged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's sort of subjective. I mean, I think there was certainly a lot of chatter online when that win was announced and people were like, huh? Like, she's one of the leads of that movie. And I, I, I can't weigh in either way. Um, I will say, though, that technically speaking, the New York Film Critics Circle does not have to follow the mandates of how studios are submitting actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that wasn't necessarily influenced by Universal's decision to run her in supporting, or maybe Kiki Palmer's decision to run herself in supporting. Um, but uh, yeah, it certainly surprised people and sort of, I think, upended how people were thinking about not only Kiki Palmer's performance in that movie, or, or rather her chances for that movie and that movie's chances, but also like the Best Supporting Actress race, which has been sort of tossed into doubt ever since Michelle Williams made her her big lead decision. Well, I realized a great way to talk about supporting actresses to uh, promote ourselves a little bit, because this week our awards issue is starting to roll out online. And uh, we not only have David's tremendous cover on Women Talking and um, two of the actresses on that cover in the supporting actress category, but then Rebecca, your reunited feature with Kiki Palmer and Angela Bassett um, ran uh, the day that Kiki won that award from the New York Film Critics Circle, True Kismet. Yeah, that worked out pretty well. And then she announced she was pregnant. <laughs> and then she announced her pregnancy on SNL. Like, what a great 48-hour I'm gonna, period. I'm going to claim we knew all this was going to happen. And we planned this. <laughs> we totally planned this. Um, no, but I mean, like, what a... What, what a, a moment for her. I mean, that is that is the exact example of like a momentum boost in this awards race, which I feel like I'm always talking about momentum and people are like, what? What is it? You know, but it, this is exactly what it is. It's like everyone is paying attention to her again. And and yeah, I think that was one of my favorite reunited. So, you know, if anyone hasn't checked it out, it's both video and a text interview online. And um, her and Angela Bassett are just as um, as amazing as you would have hoped they would have been together. Yeah. Um, and they and they pitch the movie that they want to do together. So, you know, studios, who's buying up that that script? The second because, movie to do together, because, of yes, course, yes, the yes, yes, of course. A, the future movie that they will now do together as as both adults. Um, and David, you've talked about women talking a lot on this show. You talked to a lot of the cast together at Telluride. Um, and then you had this really uh, beautiful story with uh, Sarah Polly and her cast and photographing them together. I mean, we haven't talked about women talking in a while because, you know, if its festival run is kind of over, it's coming out in theaters later this year. I mean, it's having written that story, kind of what did you take away about it? And like, what kind of new appreciation did you get for that movie? Um, definitely, this is, this is the kind of story that, 
uh, I guess I had been working on for several months because, you know, I spoke to the cast out of Telluride. Um, and we've talked on this podcast about, you know, what it was like, what it was like for me and Rebecca to see them moving in a group and how much of a collective they, they felt like even long after filming. And so, you know, having that in the back of my mind and having that conversation to inform the story, it was interesting to then talk to everybody individually more in depth. Um, and it, it, it did feel like you have all these artists. You have Sarah Pauly, uh, and the cover has Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, and Jesse Buckley, who each were at a kind of turning point uh, in their careers and really brought that to this movie. And I think that's why the movie stands out as something so unique and special, is that it's, it is a collective act, a collective creation that is really rooted in what each of these people brought to it. And obviously, beyond these four women, you also have uh, Judith Ivey and Sheila McCarthy, who were just really tremendous as the the family matriarchs of the film, the producers, Francis McDormand and Dee Dee Gardner. Like, down the list, it was a major project for everybody. And you really feel that in the the final product. Yeah, I love the way that um, Rooney Mara is kind of talked about as the you know, warm emotional center of the cast, and she certainly comes across that in the movie, but her previous roles have not given any of that away, and she kind of says that, like, I don't think you've ever seen me smile this much in a movie. I felt like I really understood it, reading your story in a way I hadn't before. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about it until she said that, and it was really the theme of our conversation was she's an actor who's felt very boxed into one type or another for almost her entire career, and this was a movie that kind of threw that out entirely and let her do something different and a little bit more, you know, in the middle, a little bit more nuanced. We can talk also about the movie, where the movie's positioned right now, because I honestly don't know. Um, we would have been talking about it by now if it came out when it was scheduled to come out. Yeah. But um, my colleague, our colleague Natalie Jarvie and I wrote a piece about the implosion of the specialty box office this fall. And this movie is one of the biggest question marks. It has been the whole time, but it, it did feel like as the bad news started piling up, it kind of abruptly uh, escaped its early December um, date. And mm -hmm. so it's now coming out around Christmas. Um, the Sun is another film that really abruptly left its date. You know, it's hard to say how much box office could matter for a movie like this. I do feel like she said was hurt by, if nothing else, the headlines of just, you know, that really zeroed in on its performance and, and hit it. I think a little bit harder than it needed to be hit, to be honest, given mm -hmm. how everything's performed. Um, and it's, it's all about optics. And I think that that's what it's going to come down to for women talking. And if, that is, if it has a decent start, you know, in a platform release with a per screen average, you know, Tar has not done well at all. But because it platformed well enough, it has pretty much escaped that narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is probably what it needs to do to make sure it's still where I think it is, which is in that mid-tier of pretty safe best picture contenders right now. And we talk about this, and it's really true right now, is a ton of Oscar voters have not seen any of these movies yet. They're going to start getting screeners. Like, that. the holiday period is really when a lot of these movies get watched. And Women Talking has a, an epic scope to it, but it's it's intimate. And it's something that I think can be really absorbing for people who are watching it at home. So if it's not, if it doesn't have this, like, you know, painted brush of like, oh, it's a failure at the box office, then maybe they get a chance to encounter it on their own terms and kind of discover what we've all found in it. That feels like it's a strategy that might work. Yeah, I think especially as SAG and Golden Globe voting completes before it comes out, it's really mm. a benefit. Yeah. Um, okay, Rebecca, so the supporting actress category, we keep saying we're going to talk about it. Uh, we 
we gave Kiki Palmer our huge boost, and as the New York Film Critics Circle did too. But do you see this race as being as chaotic as we keep saying it is? I'm so glad we have a chaotic race. <laughs> I love a chaotic. Uh, yes, I do feel that way. I mean, I was just, as we were talking about women talking, I'm just thinking about, you know, Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley. And is this the kind of thing where people feel we just need to pick one? Can they both make it in? If they do, that's already two of the five spots. And then I, I mean, we're looking at things like, I feel like Angela Bassett also has that momentum that we've been talking about. Although mm-hmm. now I'm like, oh, she's competing against Kiki, which I did not realize until um, this list came out. And so it it's a real mix of, I think, people like Angela Bassett and Jamie Lee Curtis that those are names everyone knows. And then people that have just kind of come out of, you know, that people aren't aware of, like Dolly DeLeon. And I just, I'm curious to see what the mix ends up being um, in the end. I, I really think it could go many different ways at this point. I've sort of browsed who people think is going to win right now. And there are so many people. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's really unusual because we're kind of at a time right now where like at this point last year, most people thought it was going to be Cody Smith McPhee, Uh I believe um, just because he was winning all of the critics awards. And, you know, we'd been talking about Troy Kotzer as someone who was going to emerge at SAG. Um, But, you know, there's a consensus tends to build. And even in supporting actor, Kihi Kwan, that's happening. Kate Blanchett, that's happening. Brendan Fraser, people still feel pretty bullish about that, even though we, I think we'll, we'll wait and see on that one. But this category, you have people who think it will be Jesse Buckley, people who think it will be Carrie Condon, people who think it will be Angela Bassett, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, And I think there's one more category of performance, uh, Rebecca, because I think you're right that there's all these different blocks. Um, And that is the, they're referred to as coattail nominees. They're not that. But those actresses who have a lead performance that's going to get nominated may win um, and that are also really strong in the movie. So I'm thinking of Hong Chao and the Whale, Mm -hmm. Nina Haas and Tar, and the Academy can vote that way quite often. Um, So that's yet another you know, wrench to throw in this race is there's just so many ways voters can go. And as long as you have people like Kiki Palmer winning these critics awards, it's just going to stay wide open. And yeah, it's really exciting. I think it's really reflective of the year in movies in general, where like, again, like doing the top 10 list and then, you know, publishing it and reading other people's and seeing kind of reaction online is that like this year, more than past years, it just feels like there's no consensus on anything. You know, like I have friends, colleagues who I whose opinions I trust and value who like hated the Fablemans, thought it was so stupid, and other people who loved it. And I think I've talked to people who really don't think Tar is very good. And like, I just don't see maybe maybe I'm not as attuned to it as you are, David and Rebecca, but like, I don't see one movie or one cast or whatever, really, except for maybe everything everywhere, which is why I kind of think that if Jamie Lee Curtis can get nominated, which is not really a sure thing, I don't think. I could see her just walking away with it because of the movie's bigger momentum, um, which like might help clarify this very scattered and um, non-consensus year. I really hope that, like, I love me some Jamie Lee Curtis, but I hope Stephanie Shu is being, yeah. um, you know, people are paying attention because that role, that double role was really, really tough in that movie. And yes, she's not as familiar of a name yet, but she really had to do some heavy lifting in that movie. I mean, I know there are so many performances that are so stellar, but I, I hope she is part of this conversation as well. And and I, I'm really excited that there are so many um, diverse uh, actors in this group, and I hope 
that, you know, this could this category could end up being really diverse in a year that isn't looking so hot in that respect. She and Curtis could both get nominated. I mean, when mm-hmm. was the last time yeah. there were four actors nominated for a movie? Was it like Silver Linings Playbook or something? Um, it doesn't happen it, that often anymore. Power, I think power it was of the Power of the Dog. Power yeah. of the Dog. Oh, you're right. But I think yeah. that was the first one since like Silver Linings Playbook. Like it's it's not yeah. that common. Well, th- I think the question is, is it a Power of the Dog or does Stephanie Shu get Katrina Balfe? And is it a Belfast situation oh, where Balfe. she gets pushed out by the veteran? I'm, I'm bringing the verb in. I'm bringing the verb in. <laughs> she won big um, at the Balfe Awards, though. So she's <laughs> <laughs> she did fine. Um, yeah, I think that is a question, though. Yeah, I look at everything everywhere all at once with Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Shu, and then also Women Talking with um, Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley. And like, do they all cancel each other out? And then Supporting Actress gets really weird and interesting. Like, I think everything everywhere especially is so popular that that one of them would probably get in. Um, But then you look at someone like Carrie Condon, who is the only woman in this movie that's, you know, pretty well liked. And like, does that give her just a really clear path to the top? I want to see more momentum for The Crone. The, the, the prophetess. <laughs> yes. And, and, and she's, she's really good. Sorry, she's I don't know really her name. But she's so good. It took, it took me a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Between that and um, You Won't Be Alone, Richard, which is on your top 10, big crone year for, for you. You know, here. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> Rural witches. Are you the vibes have shifted to crone, which is... <laughs> Um, not to jump into a totally different category, but David, you mentioned kind of in passing that Ki Hui Kwan, who we have a great profile of in our awards issue by Delia Kai, you should read, um, but that he kind of has it locked up, which is a consensus that emerged last week with the Gotham Awards in New York Film Critics Circle. But you had also mentioned how Cody Smith-McPhee seemed to have it locked up till he didn't. And I think it's a different situation, and I think you agree, but do you want to just walk through why he really is a locked-in winner? this time? Well, I remember around this time last year, I believe you were the first one on this podcast to really cast doubt on Cody Smith-McPhee, mainly because it just wasn't the kind of narrative slash performance that the Academy would honor here. And Ki Kwan is kind of in the opposite category where it's a very, it's a pretty explosive, fun performance, number one. Number two, he is quite similar to Troy Kotzer mm-hmm. in the kind of narrative he's had as an actor who has not gotten the opportunities he should have, who is finally given the chance, as an adult at least, to show what he can do and completely um, owns it and dominates the movie with Michelle Yeoh. And clearly, there is so much industry goodwill for him. He has been, you know, you have these stories of Harrison Ford reuniting with him, and it's just all this Hollywood nostalgia wrapped into this package of this exciting, you know, forward movie. Um, that feels pretty unbeatable to me. I just do not see anyone with any kind of momentum to beat him in this category, to be honest. It's interesting because I've talked to, to a few different actors in the last few weeks that have brought up his performance because hmm. it is a hard performance. He's playing yes. multiple characters, basically, in one body. And and I think actors who vote um, pay attention to how difficult that is. And I know we had talked about Judd Hirsch, but, you know, that's a 10-minute performance. This is, like, such a heavy lift. So I think when we're thinking about who actors want to vote for as well, they are taking notice of how difficult that was to pull off. I also think with the Hirsch of it all and the Brendan Gleeson of it all, those are two performers who are beloved, you know, been in the industry a long time. I feel like their nominations are kind of the win there, you know? I mean, I said that about Jessica Chastain last year, so <laughs> whatever. You're never going to let yourself uh, off the hook for that. Well, she's standing right behind me. so I, um, but, With um, her Oscar. Yeah, yeah threateningly. Um, 
But uh, George and Tammy, by the way, biggest Showtime premiere ever. Um, wow, she's having a having a season. Wow, um, she's really holding that Oscar over your head. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but like you know, Gleason and Hirsch, they they go to the luncheon. They 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 make the rounds. It's fun. Oh yay! Like Gleason's never been nominated before. Like. I feel like some voters might just think that's enough because like David said, like the, the Quan narrative is just so much bigger and, um, you know, captures the spirit of a movie that um, people really love and feels fresh and exciting. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't see I, I, a couple weeks ago, I would have said the Sherlock is Fraser. I kind of am doubting that now. But Quan definitely has emerged as the, the one lock, I think. Well, that kind of brings me back to Ben Wishaw. Uh, again, not to try to linger too long as a supporting actor, but we talked about the women of women talking. Does this supporting actor, like the idea that there's one lock at the top and then who knows what might fall into place? Like, could Ben Wishaw be in the strongest position of the women talking cast? I have noticed he's finally started getting out there for the movie. He's He's gone to quite a few screenings over the past few weeks. Um, he was at the Gotham surprised. Awards, I believe. He was at the Gotham Awards. He's evidently going to have a big Sundance. Um yeah, it's a really lovely performance. It's a performance that's gotten a lot of love. I think it just falls into that same category of we have to see how this movie does over the next month. Because um, if it proves to be a really strong player, he is the only contender from this movie. I don't think he can beat Kihi Kwan. Um, no, I, I wouldn't say I, more about it. Could he get nominated at this point? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think he's definitely in it to get nominated. He also benefits... From, you know, Brendan Gleeson also has uh, Barry Keoghan for um, The Banshees of Inisharan, who has a lot of support. And on The Fablemans, you also have Paul Dano, who's campaigning uh, opposite Judd Hirsch and who has a bigger part in that movie, if not a showy one. Ben Wishaw's the only man in Women Talking, and he has a lot to do in that movie. And I think that really benefits him. And he's never been nominated, which is, you know, he's still young, but he needs an Oscar nomination at some point. I'm of the opinion that this is the year that people should start nominating Ben Wishaw for things because <laughs> he's also amazing and this is going to hurt uh, his AMC Plus show. Which he won the Gotham Award for. Which he won the Gotham, well, he won the Gotham Award, but, you know, <laughs> industry, everyone, more than five people at a time. That's what I'm saying. Well, the SAG Awards are coming around the corner, so that, yeah. that's momentum building. Speaking of SAGs, if I can segue, um, I did a Q&A at a SAG screening of Empire of Light last night. Mm. Um, and maybe they were just being a nice audience. But when Olivia Coleman walked out, standing ovation. I've never seen that as, at a Q&A before. Yeah. Maybe you guys have. But um, that was a nice little thing for a movie I love that I think a lot of people don't love. And um, the the energy in the room last night, at least, felt very positive. So, I don't know. It got me thinking more about her her campaign. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, well, we wanted to talk about Empire of Light as, the, as we wrap this up because it's out this week. Um, Richard, you've been ardently defending it because you're right that a lot of critics have just like really rolled their eyes at this. And I think we're we're all fans to varying degrees of this movie. Um, how, do, how do we think it's going to fare now that it's finally playing for audiences? Like, does that SAG screening an omen that it's going to um, be better with real people and not those mean critics? You know, I defend my profession and my colleagues 
pretty regularly but like in this case i'm like you know what it is mean critics like (laughs) here's this lovely earnest movie about like real people and feelings and whatever else and it's sentimental and it's not cynical in the way that like you know i think people want or they say they want and then it actually comes out and people are like oh no actually this is this is pablum it's you know hokey or whatever my hope is that members of voting groups like the SAGs and the, uh, the Academy, like they, they seem over the years to be a bit more like welcoming to high feeling and sort of earnestness um, in a way that maybe critics aren't because we're all jaded, miserable people who really secretly want to be filmmakers. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, my hope is that the movie has a kind of second life because its first life has not been very good. It's really, it's not that we should always go by this metric, but like its score on Rotten Tomatoes is really low for a movie that I, you know, my number three movie of the year, I think is beautiful and really well acted. And it's the best movie Sam Mendes has made, I think kind of by a wide margin. And I hope, I hope people embrace it and, and sort of try to sit with it um, when they see it, if they see it um, with sort of, you know, an open, open mind and an open heart. I also like this movie a lot. Um, I think Olivia Coleman's really tremendous in it. Like, and her getting a standing ovation, I think it's not just because she's a great performance, but, you know, she's she's the queen. She shows up in a room and you you get to your feet. Um, but I do feel like she can take this film kind of far with her. We should talk about Best Actress next week, maybe. Um, but I, I think I'm with you, Richard. I just want people to see it. I think writing it off as, like, something that's hokey and, like, overly emotional. Like, people need to make that decision for themselves. It is really lovely. It's, like, beautifully crafted. The score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, I think, is gorgeous. I can't wait to listen to it again. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic for it, playing before audiences. I definitely, if anyone's seen me walking around Brooklyn, tears in my eyes and my headphones in, it's because I'm <laughs> listening to that score, which is <laughs> I've had on repeat uh, since it was sent to me. Um, it's it's really really beautiful. Um, look, and I think there are definitely legitimate criticisms of that movie and the way that it talks about mental health or, or um, uh, you know, racial politics in the early 80s of, of the UK. That's all, you know, absolutely warranted and, and worthy of, of, of critique, I suppose, if you see it that way. But like, um, the other stuff, which is just that it's kind of schmaltzy, it's just made to win Oscars. I don't think that's true. This is a very personal story for Sam Mendes, whose mother um, had a, a mental health problem similar to Olivia Coleman's character in the movie. Um, I think it's coming from a genuine place, um, but it's just being read as something that's coming from a different angle, a, a bad angle, I guess. It does feel like there's, maybe this has always happened and I just forget every year, but there seems to be this attack on sentimentality that seems louder this year. I don't know what it is, but I, I totally agree with you, Richard. I think he's he's trying to do something real and, and dig into something personal to him. And and I don't know why people feel like they have to tear that down. I mean, it, I think it's happened with a couple of films. Like, I know Bardo is problematic on many, many fronts, but I also think he was trying to do something genuine there. And I... I yeah, I don't know what's going on this year. And and there are other filmmakers who are very sentimental, you know, obviously like Spielberg that that aren't hit with that as well. So it's it's an interesting I don't know where people's heads are at this year. It's, it feels different. Ar- Armageddon Time's another one that yeah. got yeah. slammed with that. Um, God, I wonder that, if it's just like this like the least two. sentimental <laughs> movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, scribing motivations right. and very cynical motivations to these filmmakers, which mm. I don't think is fair. I, I wonder if it's just year two of this wave of memoiristic movies about movies, et cetera, thing, post-COVID thing going on. Um, but I, I agree. I, I think we all like Empire of Light on this podcast. I personally just found it very involving. And mm-hmm. at Telluride, 
you know, not to slam Bardo, but it was uh, refreshing after that film because I saw the over three hour cut. And it, it was a movie that seemed to play very well to that audience from what I remember. And yeah, just a lot of love for Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward, who's fantastic uh, in a breakout role. I, I I remember going, come, leaving that movie feeling like this is going to play really well to the Academy. I think that's what Rebecca and I said to each other. So and it still very well may be. <laughs> and still, yeah, there's the, nothing has changed yeah. in that regard. But you know, to Richard's point, it does. It has been hit so hard, so consistently before it's even come out that it, it's opening with the deck stacked against it. It's hard to deny that at this stage. I also think, you know, it's gotten painted with the brush of like, oh, it's just another one of these like movies salute to movies. It's not really. There is one yeah. crucial scene where someone watches a movie and their life sort of changes, but it's not really about movies. It's about something bigger than that. You know, um, I especially think it's that sort of an unfair criticism when there is another movie coming down the pike pretty soon that really does do that kind of treacly cloying salute to the movies toward the end um, that in, in a kind of outrageous way that I think is very silly. Um, we'll so, talk about Avatar next week, Richard. Uh, right. That's well, actually, <laughs> what I'm talking about does sort of relate to Avatar in a weird way. Um, but um but like Empire of Light is not about that. It's not. Uh, it's not one of those sort of the artist kind of like Hollywood movies about Hollywood. I mean, it's not even a Hollywood movie. But um, yeah. So if that has been the sort of perception that people listening to this have had about the movie, trust me when I say that's not what the movie's about. It's also the effect of those post premiere tweets from a lot of bloggers sure, and right. people yeah. whose whose names are very you know intermixed in my mind who all called it a love letter to the movies <laughs> and then everyone gets very mad at everyone calling it a love letter to the movies and it's like this is not a relevant conversation to this movie guys like it's a love letter to love letters <laughs> <laughs> that's lady chatterley's lover right? maybe more evidence that twitter should have died and uh, we all should have gone on with our lives but um here we Finish still the are finish elon <laughs> That does it for today's show. Before we end, though, I want to say we're going to do a mailbag episode of the week of Christmas uh, for the episode airing December 22nd. So we would love for you to email us. You can tweet at us, too, but email might be better. Um, just with, you know, whatever your burning questions are about this season, previous Oscar seasons, we'll collect them all and get into as many as we can. Um, you can email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. Um, please come find us. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, where a lot of really great stories from our awards issue are going to be coming out this week and the next. Um, you can find us on Twitter at HWD and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for what we hope we'll be saying at the end of our upcoming mailbag episode goes to Rebecca Ford. Yeah, that worked out pretty well. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. 
the fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company, and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment, and if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.